following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. And for, for more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. Open our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you are new with us, my name is David. I'm the senior pastor here. It's my pleasure to be with you. I need to um, introduce you this morning uh, to a really special person that's in the crowd today, um, and it's my mother. My mother is with us, and she's with us uh, for a while here to visit, uh, so I've already sworn her to only tell good stories, um, uh, but one thing that I, I would, you, you experienced something every week that was a gift of my mom beyond my birth, right? I mean, you know, I, you know my birth is a blessing to you, right? Um, <laughs> Uh, but when I was in ninth grade, I remember this vividly, my mom scheduled my classes. And instead of putting me in PE, she scheduled me for typing. Now this is in 1983-84 when we had the regular typewriter. You guys remember those? They had the, the fingers that went up and popped up like that, right? I know those of you are like mute, like whatever. That's what I was doing in ninth grade, typing. So when you receive an email, when you receive a written manuscript, a sermon manuscript from me, when you receive anything in written form from a computer, that's because my mom in ninth grade forced me to take typing, right? <laughs> and my mom made this comment. I'll never forget it. I said, well, I'm in, I'm in P. I want to be a P with my friends. And she said, I don't know. I think one day computers are going to matter. In 1983, right? That's, that's prophetic. So, Mom, thank you. We're glad you're with us. So be sure you, you uh, shake her hand and greet her and, and all those things, all right? Okay, so the last couple of weeks, last few weeks, we have been looking at leadership in the local church. We, we've looked at gender roles. We've taken a couple of weeks on gender roles. Last week, Dave taught about elders in the church. And we're going to continue that this morning <clears throat> as we look at the desire and qualifications of a deacon, But there's another question that I really want to pose to us this morning that I think the text as well draws out, and it's it's this question. Why, Why is it that God is so concerned about this? That he would write two chapters, basically, giving us the qualifications, desires of leaders in the church. Why does God even care, right? Why is it so important to God... That he would do this. Why would he inspire the Apostle Paul to write these words to young Timothy, his protege in Ephesus in the first century? Why would he stir him to do this? Why, why is this so important to God? And this is really important to us right now. I just got a, a comment from a dear friend of mine that I grew up with, um, who wrote me, uh, this morning and just had a quote from a very prominent Protestant pastor who basically said this. I am no longer going to preach that God's word is what God says. You have to ask yourself, what kind of world do we live in when prominent pastors would say these kind of things? There's a move in Christianity right now to deconstruct the church. They call themselves deconstructionists or exvangelicals. It's a move that says we can't trust anything that comes from the leadership in the church and we cannot trust anything historically that has passed, been passed down to the church. But my, my question to deconstructionists would be this. Then why did God give us words about how to construct the church if we are to deconstruct the church? 
But there's also a move away from the importance of the church gathered about getting together on a Sunday context to meet together. It's actually started way before the pandemic. Uh, some of you are probably aware of different churches that call themselves, you know, lifechurch.tv. And they then, they then decide on how they're going to gauge their membership by what their online viewership is. And I, I hear this regularly from people who I may not see at church on a regular basis. And I say, hey, we've been missing you. Hope you're doing okay. And their comment is, oh, yeah, it's great, man. We're getting all the spiritual nourishment we need from the podcast that we listen to. And the pandemic exasperated this. It just kicked it into gear even more. It made it even worse. And, and some begin to leave the church altogether. But my question is, why did God write so clearly about the gathering of the church's importance if it's not important? And if it is important to God, then should it not also be important to us? Some would question even the church's organization, structure, form, how we lay out governance in the church. The church should be, in their mind, organic. You know, it should be natural. We, we should just simply decide, whenever we decide to get together, let's just randomly let whoever talk wants to talk. Let's sing whatever songs we want to sing. Or if we're going to sing songs, let's decide the kind of things that we might do when we get together. Because there's no reason to have any formal leadership because we didn't, that, that's just not how God made the church. But my, my question about that is, again, if that's God's desire, then why did God write about the organization and why did he write about the details about the qualifications and desires for leaders? Why did he do that if none of this stuff is important? So this morning, I want us to look at the role of a deacon, but I, I also want to then follow that up with this question. Why does God give us this stuff? Why, why, does he, why is it important to him? And, and here's what I think we're going to find. Now, you know, you've got an outline. You don't have an outline. And the reason you don't have an outline is Perry left to go to Cabo last week, right? And said, hey, do you mind if I just print blank outline? Great. So you've got to do some writing today. But also Perry called me or texted me on Friday that his flight was canceled and that he... <laughs> won't be back till a minimum of Monday and said, sorry, boss, of which I said, I don't need to hear from you right now. Okay. <laughs> We're working here, right? We got things to do. Okay. So here's the big idea this morning that we want to hit on. <clears throat> and here's what I think we're going to find in this text. The church matters to God and it should matter to us. God has called leaders to serve and care for his church because his church matters to him. Let me say it again. The church matters to God and it should matter to us. God has called leaders to serve and care for his church because his church matters to him. Now, now one of the things that we tendency to, have a tendency to do when we read something like that is we'll say, well, we're talking here about the universal church, the church that's invisible, the church that's scattered. But I just want to ask you a question. If that's the case... Why did Paul write a letter to a man serving a local church if these words are not about the local church? So when you read this big idea, you should have in your mind, the church as we gather in Roseburg, Oregon at Covenant Life Fellowship matters to God and it should matter to us. And God has called the CLF leaders to serve and care for this church, because it's his church, because it matters to God. That's how you need to see this in your mind's eyes. You're looking at this text of scripture. So let's 
stand together. We're going to read 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 16, and then we're going to pray. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your mind and in your economy of getting things done, the church, the gathering of your people, is incredibly important. And this morning I pray that you would elevate in our eyes the importance of your church, whether that be for us to be people of prayer, people of, uh, of more faithful service, people that would utilize our gifts for the good of your church because your church is important to you. But Father, help, help us to, to keep the church in a way that honors you. And bless the preaching of your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now let's start with the first point, which is the heart and the role of a deacon. You're going to see this in verses 8 through 11. Now this section, verse 8, comes on the heels directly after Paul's discussion about elders. Elders are overseeing pastors of the church. They're under shepherds of the great shepherd Jesus. So what you need to understand about pastors, what you need to understand about the pastors that serve you here is that we're not the best pastor. The best pastor is Jesus. And the glory and the wonder of the best pastor is that the best pastor allows under shepherds to re-speak his word to his people and the great shepherd, the best pastor, goes after his people, right? So as I'm preaching this morning on leadership in the church and the importance of the church, probably some of you are going to be convicted about things that have nothing to do with the sermon. You know why? Because the great shepherd is going after you because he cares for you. That's such great news. And, and, and these elders are serving as under shepherds of this great shepherd to just care for God's people as God has directed his people. Elders are to teach God's word to the church. They're to protect the church from false doctrine and from sin. They're to pray for and care for God's people. And Dave Quilla, who preached on this faithfully last week, said this about good leaders. Good leadership is essential to the life of the church. The men who lead should be men of passion combined with a strong, mature, and godly character which reflects the power of the gospel at work in them. Good leadership is essential in the life 
of the church. So as we dive into the role and heart of a deacon, we need to notice, verse 8, that one word that Paul uses is the word likewise. In other words, Paul's saying the same stuff we've been talking about from verses 1 through 7 that apply to an elder also apply to a deacon. You're going to notice as you look at the text that there are the same, some of the same qualities. A husband of one wife, managing his household well and not being addicted to much wine. In this word, likewise, what Paul is doing is he's continuing the discussion of leadership in the church. In the same light, with the same weight, holding the same heading of leadership. This is what we're looking at. Likewise. These things matter. It's a continuation of Paul's thought all the way from chapter 2, verse 8. He's continuing the same conversation. And you're going to notice in the text four things about the deacon's heart. In verse 8, you're going to notice that he must be self-controlled. Notice all the knots in the text. N-O-T-S, not K-O-N-E-T-S. Right? Right? N-O-T-S. Knots. Not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. A deacon, like an elder, must be dignified, must be mature, must be measured. We actually see this in Acts chapter 6 when we're first introduced to the role of a deacon. When God told the apostles to pick out men who were, look at this, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Deacons were not just some guy you picked off the street. These were guys that you saw and knew. These are wise men. These are dignified men. These are self-controlled men. But then you notice in verse 9... They're to be men of sincere convictions. They hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now, I put a verse on there to contrast this for you, that the false teachers in Ephesus were men who had rejected the faith, and they rejected a good conscience. Now, those men that Paul's talking about in chapter 1 are the men that more than likely were former elders of the church in Ephesus who begin to teach false doctrine. And Paul says, contrasted to those men... A deacon is a man who has sincere convictions. He knows what he believes about the gospel, and he stands firm on those beliefs. The winds of doctrine do not toss these men. They have sincere, deep-rooted convictions. But then you notice in verse 10 that they're to be proven and tested. This is remarkably clear in the text. Let them be tested first and prove themselves. This means there to be a time frame. For noticeable, observable service and character. As with the elder, a deacon does not need to be called a deacon to be deaconing. Right? He's already doing the work. I mean, literally picking out who the deacons and elders are among you is not a hard task. You know what you look for? You look for dudes that are already doing it. And you go, that guy's a deacon without the name of deacon because he's deaconing. That guy's eldering. He's doing this work. And for the church, this means that the deacon is not placed in his office with haste. There's no, you know, there's no speed of this kind of stuff. It's done in patience with some deliberation, with, with a process of time to observe the character of a person. Instead, what the church should do is operate by this mantra, which we do here. Here's the little mantra that we, we, we live by. It's easier to put someone in leadership in the church than it is to take them out of leadership in the church. So therefore, we want to be deliberate in putting people in leadership so we don't have to take them out of leadership. Because believe me, it is painful to take somebody out of leadership when you've wrongfully put them in leadership. Deacons should be proven. 
But then finally, you'll notice in verses 11 and 12 that a deacon's home life is to match his convictions. His wife, just like the elder's wife, should be under control. She's to be dignified and self-controlled like him. When you talk to an elder's couple or you talk to a deacon couple, you know that what you say with them is going to stay with them. They're not gossipy, talking about you or other things. What you share with them stays with them. Their family life is orderly. Their children are managed well. Their household is cared for well. It's orderly. And what I want you to notice from these four qualifications is notice the heart of the deacon. He's for Christ because he has deep, sincere, deep-rooted convictions about Christ. He's for his family. His wife is with him in this. He's managing his household well. And he's also for the church. He's a guy that when he shows up, you know this guy is doing the work of a deacon. This guy loves the church. Notice their heart for Christ, for their family, for the church. But you might ask, okay, what do deacons do? I mean, I I grew up in a Southern Baptist church that the deacons basically ran the church. They basically voted you in, voted you out. They were the ones who ruled the church. And to understand the role of the deacon, we need to go back to the origin of the role of a deacon, right? You've you've heard me say this before. Anytime you want to know, like, what does marriage supposed to look like? How, How did God intend for marriage to look? Where should we go? We should go back when God created marriage. Back in the creation, back in the garden scene, and find out how did God create man and woman to live together in harmony and in unity together. We're going to do the same thing in the New Testament with when God originated the idea of the deacon in the church's mind. And that's in Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, at the point of the New Testament church's history, things have exploded. They went from 120 disciples to over 3,000 people in one day. Now just to do the math on that for a minute... In our church, we have 279 adult members right now. That would mean if 3,000 people came to Jesus in one day, the average would be every member of our church would need to be discipling 15 people. Now just ask yourself, as a member of our church, are you prepared to take on 15 people in your schedule and your life to personally disciple who are brand new in the faith? What a blessing that would be first, right? But secondly, are you prepared to do that? That's what's being, that's what's happening in this church. It's exploding. And as the church grew, like it does in most places, so did the needs. And it got to the point where the church's leaders, the apostles, were being pulled away from the ministry of God's word and from praying for the church. Now before you, most people read this and they go, okay, I see what's happening here. You know, the, these, these leaders, they need to study more and they need to pray more. Man. They're just, they just want to spend time with God praying and not doing anything else. That's what this is about. And that's not what this is about. If you understand the ministry of the word, you understand that care for souls means the ministry of the word. You understand that regards preaching the word, counseling the word, confronting with the word, administrating God's church with the word. It means praying and meeting with people regularly with the word. It means filling your schedule with soul stuff. So here they are doing all the soul stuff, and then on top of that, widows and orphans are going crazy in their church, and they can't meet all the needs. So there's administrative things that are happening. They're literally ministering to the day and at night, running around, just doing all the ministry stuff, the the physical need of the church that needs to take place. And that's when the Lord gave them this unique idea. Find men full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom 
and have them assist in caring for the needs of the church so that the spiritual overseers can be freed up to do the ministry of the word and prayer and counsel with God's people. See, what you notice from this text is just two main things. There's other things you can notice, but notice two things. First, I want you to notice the priority for the overseers of the church to be freed up to minister and teach and preach and counsel God's word and pray for God's people. Notice that. That's, that's a huge priority. Now, I will say this. At CLF, our church gets it. I am freed up. Our pastors are freed up to do these kind of things regularly. That's why we can do the things that we do in our community. That's why we're allowed to counsel regularly. That's why we can preach with such freedom because we, we don't, we're not tied into a lot of these administrative things that are pulling us away. But I want you to secondly notice that priority of preaching and teaching and praying and counseling is what led to the role of the deacon. Because they were being pulled away, and the text even says, it's not right for us to be pulled away. It doesn't mean it's sinful. It just means it's not wise. The church can't survive without leaders, spiritual leaders, overseeing the church with the word of God and with prayer. And so this, this priority is what created the roles of the deacon. And so the deacon actually comes alongside the overseers, the elders, the pastors to serve the church so that the overseers can serve the church with the word of God and with prayer. It's this understanding from Acts chapter 6 that Alexander Strauch in his excellent book called Paul's Vision for the Deacons wrote this. The deacons represent the elders and act on their behalf in service to God's church. It follows then that they, like the elders, need to be properly qualified, examined, and approved by the church. And as assistance to the elders, the deacons were to measure, to exercise a measure of formal authority in the congregation, but notice, always under the authority of the elders. Now, what you notice here is something fascinating. In the Bible, deacons are like assistants or helpers to the elders. They serve the needs of the church. They exercise delegated authority in the church, and they're indispensable to the life of the church. If your pastors and leaders are pulled away to do administrative things and they cannot minister the word of God to you, what we do on a Sunday is going to get hurt. What we do in the counseling room is going to get hurt. What we do in being able to bring the gospel to the community is going to be affected. Deacons are indispensable to the life of the church. And Paul in 1 Timothy 3.13 shows us the value of faithful deacons. When he says that deacons who serve faithfully could know that God is pleased with them. See, deacons can have great confidence before God that God loves faithful deacons and the church should love faithful deacons. And CLF, listen, you have remarkably faithful deacons. We have 10 of them. Four of them were in our early service with us. Our deacons help us in our church. They assist us with caring for our members. We care deeply for our members. We say we're going to do like the In-N-Out burger thing. You know, we're going to make sure we got a burger right, the milkshake right. Fries, not so much. We'll figure that out later. But, but we're going to do a couple things well. We're going to preach the gospel. We're going to care for our members. We're going to preach the gospel. We're going to care for members. And each of our members in our church has a leader from our leadership community that they can contact for their needs, their emergencies, or for prayer. So listen, if you're a member 
here, at some point in the next two weeks, you will receive an email to remind you or to introduce you to the member care leader that you can contact if something should arise. So everybody in our church has somebody they know is going to care for them. They can pray for them. They'll meet with them if necessary. And each of our deacons, listen, they are ready to serve you and they're ready to serve our church. God loves faithful deacons and the church should love them as well. So listen, if, if you are a deacon in our church, I just want you to stand up where you are right now. We just want to recognize you. Stand up where you are. Wade, I see you. Stand up. Right? Stand up. I think Wade might be the only one. There's Dwayne. Rex was in the sound booth earlier, right? Who else is somebody in the, is, Rex, get out here so we can see you, please. <laughs> Rex is in the lobby, right? Now, what I want you to know about these men, every one of the deacons are deaconing. Wade, on a regular basis, is teaching our older kids classes on Sunday mornings. Dwayne leads one community group. At one time was leading, well, actually leading two community groups right now. Rex is always here serving something. I mean, you find Rex, he's bringing water to the coffee. He's helping with the sound booth. He's doing a variety of things. Every deacon does something like that. They're already recognizable, right? Would you applaud these men, right? God loves faithful deacons, and we should love them as well. But here's the question that I posed at the outset. We've studied gender roles in the church. We've studied elders, qualifications and desire. We've studied deacons a little bit. But why does God care? Why does this matter to God? Why, why does God write such clear details about what you're looking for in the church for these type of people? Why does God care about how we operate in our genders in the church? Why does that matter to God? We, we could, on the one hand, rightfully say, well, God cares about leaders because leaders are to reveal something to us about the authority of the Godhead. We've talked about that before, that we can go back to the Godhead and see that God gave us authority that reveals to us the authority that's given to us from God. And that's true. But our text does something unique. Our text before us shows us, shows us why God wrote the words he did in 1 Timothy 2 and 3. Our text reveals to us the importance of the church, which is our second point. You'll see this in verses 14 through 16. Now, when you read this section, it seems a bit disconnected. It seems like Paul is changing his thoughts or he's transitioning to something else, but I I don't think that's the case. Here's why. Notice verses 14 and 15 with me as Paul details why he wrote these things. Timothy, if I'm delayed... I want you to know how one ought to behave in the household of God. In other words, Paul wrote these things, chapters 1 through 3 so far, so that we would know how we are to act in the church when the Apostle Paul is not with us. Now, let's just do the math. The Apostle Paul has not been with us since the beginning of the first century, which means Paul wrote these words to Timothy and all churches everywhere so that we might know how we ought to behave in the household of God. In other words, we might know what the church's mission is, is to proclaim the gospel. That we might know how gender roles are to live out and be complementary in the church. That we might understand how leaders are to be chosen and what leaders were looking for in the church. In other words, Timothy and all pastors everywhere, listen, these 
things are written for our instruction that we know what we're doing. That we understand how to look for leaders. But, but also recognize that when Paul wrote this to Timothy, the expectation was that Timothy would sit his congregation down as they gathered and Paul would be read by Timothy in front of the congregation. So the congregation might know as well, oh, how we ought to behave in the church. In other words, Paul would instruct the members of the church in Ephesus and our members here in the 21st century to say this, you now know what the church's mission is. You also know how gender roles are to complement one another and you need to know what you're looking for in leaders. Paul's words in this section are not disconnected from what he has previously been talking about. Rather, Paul is saying these things for a reason. And I think the reason is found in this wonderful verse in verse 15. In all the descriptions that Paul gives about the church. Now listen again, this is the local church. This is, this is the church gathered, not the church scattered. And notice what Paul writes about the church. The inspired word of God. God breathing out these words through Paul. He says the church is the household of God. The church of the living God. The pillar and buttress of the truth. See, each of these descriptions reveals something about this thing that we call the church. It's the household of God. You don't call something your household if you don't believe you're going to dwell there and so are your people and your family. It's the home of God. You gather on a Sunday morning with God's family, brothers and sisters, with older men who are like fathers and older women who are like mothers. You, you gather together with people that have a like-minded understanding of the gospel of Christ and you're linking arms knowing we call God our Father. We're coming together in the household of God. But he doesn't stop there. He says it's the church of the living God. Now just imagine what these people in Ephesus would think. As that big temple of Diana is towering over their city in this little dinky little church. Maybe 30 people gathered together. 15 people gathered together in this little small church. And they look on the backdrop and there's this temple of Diana, the goddess of fertility, towering over all they do in their city. And Paul basically is saying, as you're gathering here in this little small meeting, guess what you are? You're the church of the living God. But that temple, that temple is the, it's a temple of a dead goddess. What you have here is the church, the gathering place of the people of the living God. This gathering is not like the gathering at a Buddhist temple or a Hindu temple. No, this gathering is the gathering of the people of the living God. And then he says the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. Paul uses these words on purpose because the temple of Diana was one of the seven wonders of the world. It had pillars They were 67 feet tall and buttresses that supported it. It was a monstrosity. So Paul writes to this little teeny church. I mean, can you imagine? Little bitty church as they gather together and they look up on the hill and they see these huge pillars, these big buttresses. And he says, listen, the church, this little gathering 
Is the pillar and the buttress not of concrete and stone? Oh no, that's so temporal, but of the truth of the living God. It's a place where truth is found. It's a place where truth is demonstrated. It's a place where gender roles are revealed to the church of what it looks like to the world. It's a place where marriage is displayed as the picture of Jesus and his church. It's a place where fathers and mothers care for children. And as they go out into the world, they show the world, this is what the truth looks like. The church is founded on the truth. It's foundational to the truth. And you might ask, what truth is it? Well, Paul tells us in verse 16 when he gives us his creed about the gospel. It's the truth about Jesus who came in the flesh was raised by the Spirit, proclaimed among the nations, believed in the world, and who ascended to heaven. The local church, the local church is the is holding high this truth of Jesus. Now when you put these phrases together, the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and the buttress of the truth, here, here's what you are seeing. You're seeing how important The church is to God. You're seeing what God thinks of the church. You're seeing what God thinks of this little thing that we do at 8.30 and 10.30 on Sunday mornings. You're seeing what God thinks of the church gathered, not just the church scattered, but the church gathered. When you read this, you you know now that this means that the church isn't an optional activity for the Christian. The church isn't a day of the week where we just check something off of our to-do list. The church isn't a hobby or a side dish. Oh, no, 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 no. No, friends, no. The local church, the church of the living God, it's the household of God. It's the church of the living God. It's the pillar and buttress of the truth of Jesus. It is the institution by which God is doing his work in the world. Do you see how important the church is? You, you can say amen to that. I mean, it's okay. Yes, amen. I mean, you can't. This means yes, this means no. I mean, let's get on with this. I mean, can you see how important this is? Yeah. Hey, okay, good. Thank you. Right? <laughs> Didn't think you guys were that dull. Right? I mean, right? <laughs> see, when you connect what Paul's been instructing in verses chapters 1 through 3 to the church's importance, you'll now understand why... Gender roles are important to God. Church leadership is important to God. Church membership is important to God. See, that's our last point. The calling of leaders and members. See, here's what Paul is saying. Timothy and all pastors for all time. Ephesian church members and all church members for all time. God has given you his church in a local place. It's his household where his family gathers. He's given you his church, the gathering of people who believe in the living God. And your church is a pillar and a buttress of the truth of Jesus to hold it high and be foundationally built upon this truth. And since he's given you this precious gift called his church, then through Paul, God wrote to us, through Timothy, through the church at Ephesus, to know how we ought to behave in the church, 
to care for this precious gift called the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. Therefore, know your mission. It's about the gospel. Understand how gender roles work in the church. It's about the gospel. Care for the church. Choose your leaders well. And leaders, when you're chosen well, lead well. And members, when you have faithful leaders, follow well. Why? 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 Because this. Then This is the household of God. The church of the living God. The pillar and buttress of the truth. I mean, do, do you see this? Why would we not do it the way he has described? There's a legend in American history that I think would serve us well on this point. In 1787, as our founding fathers were writing the Constitution and they were discussing it, legend has it that 81-year-old Ben Franklin was simply an assistant there. He was just giving advice. Would you love to get advice from Ben Franklin? And after they had finalized the Constitution and they had made some decisions on how they would do it, Dr. Franklin went out on the steps of Constitution Hall and somebody asked him this question. Dr. Franklin, do we have a republic or a monarchy? To which Dr. Franklin replied these words, a republic, if you can keep it. When I read Paul's words in 1 Timothy, when you read Paul's words in 1 Timothy, we should read Timothy and all pastors everywhere, Ephesian church members and all church members everywhere, God has given you his church if you can keep it. And when you read these words, something ought to stir in you, which has with me, as I've studied these words again, is where's the local church in Ephesus? It's not there. And you know of the warning in Revelation when God told them, "Don't, don't leave something. So history would tell us that dear Pastor Timothy, a few years later, after this letter was written to him, laid his life on the line to share the gospel in a parade of people following the cultists of Diana, trampled him underfoot and killed him. And his disciples took him and buried him up on top of the mountain that overlooked the city because dear Pastor Timothy had served them well. And even after the Apostle John went and served at the Ephesian church, they begin to lose something. They begin to deviate. That's why when I read these words, in my, in my mind, CLF, that, that tells us something. We must not deviate from the pages of Scripture regarding leadership and governance in the church. To do so is to not keep the church. 
It's why we must not deviate from what God has declared about gender roles in the church. To deviate is to not keep the church. It's why we must not deviate from what God's word says about holding high the gospel of Christ. To deviate from the gospel is to not keep the church. It's why we must not deviate from administrating the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. To deviate is to not keep the church. It's why we must not deviate from protecting the church from sin that would destroy the church. Because to deviate from this is to not keep the church. God has given us the household of faith, the pillar, the the, the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. Therefore, you have a church if you can keep it. And CLF, listen, let's, let's keep keeping the church by the grace of God, with the power of God, through obedience to God. Now listen, we, we, if you know your Bibles, you know very well where you go, well, Jesus said himself, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And you're right. He's talking about the ongoing move of his invisible church. Even though the Ephesian church is gone, there have been churches sprouted all over this world and are still reading, still reading the pages of scripture about that church. And we should be heeding its warnings. Talking here about the living, the local church, as we gather, listen, by the grace of God, with the power of God, through obedience to God. Now, this, 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 this just stirs something in us. And I just ask you, is the local gathering of believers as important to you as this text declares? And we're coming up on that time of the world, time of the year here in Oregon when we see the sun for about three days. And I know what we do. We go, oh, what's that big yellow thing in the sky? And we run toward it like running toward incense at a temple, right? And we're just like, we lose our minds. Here's what I want to ask you and to think about. Are you planning your camping, your sports, your activities, all the different things? Listen around the importance of church gathered? Or do those things get pushed to the backside or those things get pushed to the forefront and church gets pushed to the circumference because you got you just got to get away. Nothing wrong with good vacations. Nothing wrong with getting away. But even while you're gone, does your mind drift back to, hey kids, it's 1030 right now. Our church is getting ready to gather while we're cooking breakfast, doing marshmallows. Let's just stop and pray for our church. Let's even watch online if we can. Or do you look for another local church to go gather with on that Sunday morning? And parents, this is why it's so important to you. If you want to know a good way to help your children understand the importance of church, you show them what's important in church. You bring them along to serve with you. You introduce them to the people of God. You show them how important this is and keep it in front of them. See, friends, do you see how important the church is to God? And if it is important to God, it should be important in our schedules and important in our money and important in our gifts. It's central to what God is doing in the world. And we've got to understand this. This isn't just the church scattered. This is the church gathered. Let's pray.
Father, this morning we thank you for your word. And thank you that, as you so faithfully do, you are pastoring your people. Would you, as I prayed earlier, Father, would you elevate the church's importance in our hearts and our minds? And it may simply be that some of us think, man, I, I just need to pray more for my church. I need to pray for our people. It may be that we think, man, when I'm gone, I need to have the local church in mind. It may be that some families go, man, our schedules are way out of whack and we need to get, we need to get our life centered around what's going on with the gathered church once again. It may be, Lord, with, I know with baseball season arising and, and all the different sports stuff going on that, that we as parents have to make tough choices about what we do with our kids. Because we want to show them the importance of the church gathered. So I pray that you would direct traffic in our hearts. Lord, you, you are faithful to do that. Your people are yours. And I thank you, Father, that in this church, our people have supported leadership. They have chosen leadership well. They have been so supportive. Help us. Help us to keep what you've given us. By the grace of God, with the power of God, through obedience to God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.